This is week four of our nine-week series called Teach Us to Pray, where we're looking to the book of Psalms, which was the prayer book of Jesus, shaped Jesus' own prayer life, so that this book would shape ours as well. And so, uh, how are you guys doing with the 60-day challenge? We're praying through all the Psalms in 60 days, 150. How are you guys doing with that? They're amazing. That's great. Um, so today I have the joy of introducing the speaker. <laughs> He's one of the elders of our church. He also happens to be an organic and medicinal chemist. So he's a scientist, and he's going to be preaching on Psalm 8, which is what is creation, how amazing is it, and where do we fit into it? That kind of psalm. So if you could turn to Psalm 8. Again, this is us saying, Jesus, teach us. Teach us to pray. And so uh, before Dr. Ruffet comes up to preach, we have Jimena, one of our community leaders. She's going to read the psalm over us. So Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. All right. Good morning. How you doing? Yeah. Um, Matthew, nice meeting you. Excited to be here um, and speak today. Um, as you can tell, I, I have a slight French accent. Um, no, actually, it's there. <laughs> it doesn't go away. Um, that's because that's where I was born and raised. Um, so if I speak too fast, which I do when I'm stressed out, so like exactly right now in front of people I don't really know well, um, just make some weird faces. I'll, I'll try to slow down and adjust. Uh, but I'm excited you guys are here. And so, yeah, we just read Psalm 8, and we're in a series of Teach Us How to Pray. And so today we're going to talk about this psalm in, in relationship with science, and I'm really excited about that. Um, but before we, before we dive in, um, I'd like to kind of think about something that maybe we don't think about a lot, which is the context, the worldviews, right? Now, I could do this on my own and give you a, a 10-minute background on, on context, and great, but I'd rather you help me out on a little Bible trivia. How about that? Also, I don't like to lecture for too long. So typically in my class, I get to engage and ask questions. So today, here you are. You're my class. Um, and so I'm looking forward to getting your answers. You ready for this? No, you ready for this? All right. Okay. Uh, the good news is if you fail, uh, you don't get an F because you're not in my class. So that's, that's beautiful. So if you fail, nobody cares. And we're just going to have fun, right? Okay. Ready for it. First one. What language were the Psalms originally written in? What is it? One more time. Hebrew, you got to speak loud because there's like clouds and plains and, well, no clouds, but, you know, okay, <laughs> San Diego, no clouds, but there's plains and things. Okay, so Hebrew, yeah? Ancient Hebrew to be specific. Okay, so far everybody's on track. I like this. What genre is the Psalms about? Poetry. poetry. All right, poetry. Ancient poetry, by the way. Not the same as the 
modern poetry with, with rhymes and, and, and rhythm, it's different. Uh, Hebrew poetry uses more of like parallelism and stuff like that, which is really interesting. Okay, another one. That's a tricky one. Ready? When do you think they were written? Or 3,000 years ago, I hear? We have higher bets? So there's, there's some debate, right? And so it's a tricky question because really I think people think it ranges from like 1500 BC to 450 BC, right? That's, that's, uh, that's pause on this, but that's, that's the idea. All right, a couple more. But before we do that, we're going to have planes flying over, yeah? This is Park Hill, <laughs> it's just outside Park Hill. So when we're going to do that, since we're talking about creation and, and nature and, and the creation of God, let me ask you to do one thing. Every time we have a plane, I'll pause and look around. Look at the trees, look at the colors of the palm trees, look at the sky, the beautiful blue sky, and ponder and wonder. Right? That's, that's kind of my goal as we talk about creation. I hope you can do that. So, um, okay, let's keep going. A couple more questions, we're almost there. How many Psalms are in your Bible? How many Psalms? How many Psalms? 150, exactly, very good, 150 Psalms. Yeah, extra credit question. I don't do extra credit, but today we're going to do it. It's Sunday, you get extra credit. Do you know how many books are within those Psalms? 150 Psalms, they're dividing a couple books. How many? How many? Five. Yeah, that's right. Five. So most likely Psalm 8 is located in which one? Which book? The first one. Now it turns out, if you pay attention to how it's been designed, which is not random, by the way. It's not just a, a random set of books. It's actually organized because five books remind you of something in Old Testament. What is it? The Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Deuteronomy, and so on and so forth. Yeah? So here's one way to frame it. It's kind of a new Torah about prayer for God's people. Think about that. A new Torah for God's people. But we go further. As they strive to be faithful to the Torah and wait for the Messianic kingdom. That's what Timaki said, which I love. I find it's very profound. And, and Psalm 8 being located in the first book of the Psalms, that would be referring to Genesis. And there's some relevant to, to the creation account. That's where we are. So to summarize what we've learned in a little trivia, what are we actually dealing with? Jimena just read it. What are you dealing with? A hymn of praise. It's poetry. Written over 3,000 years ago. In ancient Hebrew. In the first book of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Welcome to Park Hill. <laughs> no problem. We got this, right? And you're going to tell me, well, why do I care? Why does it matter? Well, let me tell you why. Because we have a tendency to forget how much our current culture and worldview shape our lives. And more specifically our reading of scripture. Now, what's a part of our current American 21st century worldview? We have concepts like democracy. That's normal, that's what we think about, democracy. We think about finances and economy. We had a class about this last week. We think about social media. I mean, you don't know a world without social media. Most people don't know that world. News outlet, freedom and rights. And also a very scientific way of viewing the world. And if you've realized that, you like things to be ordered and organized and you like to count things and it's very, very chronological, typically. That's how we think about this. Now, to, give, to go further, I'd like to give you an example of what we're talking about with this American uh, 21st century worldview. Dr. John Walton is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. And he said it this way. In our current worldview, we make the distinction between natural and supernatural. So if I tell you something is natural, what are you thinking about? Something that can be explained, right, with the scientific worldview of, like, the gravity or the speed of light or... This is something we can explain, thermodynamics and so on and so forth. But if I say supernatural, what are you thinking about? Yeah, something outside, right, of, of the natural world, yeah? We, we have, I mean, if there's like a miracles, like, oh, that's supernatural, we cannot explain it with the natural laws. 
So we have this distinction, natural, supernatural. Well, it turns out that in the ancient Near East culture, they didn't think in those terms. They didn't have the categories for those words. Because for them, God was doing everything. God was doing everything. God, I mean, the, the way to think about it is God was no less involved in our everyday lives than in the most amazing miracles you can think of. If you breathe, that's because of God. If you can walk, that's because of God. If you have a baby, that's because of God. And then there's a beautiful sun, that's because of God too. That's your worldview. Do you understand so far what I'm talking about? This is like a different way of thinking about it, yes? Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this psalm and we're going to understand this psalm in its context. Um, we're going to go through the nine verses. We're going to take a detour by Genesis, its creation, and then we'll go back to summit before going to the table. That's the plan for today, yeah? All right, so let's go in. Let's dive in. I uh, hope you have your Bible open because we're going to read together. So um, let's read the first verse together, which happens to be also the last verse. Remena read it. I want to read it again with you. So um, if you're ready, hopefully you have your Bible open or your phone open. Psalm 8, verse 1. You ready? Uh, let's, read, let's read this together. One, two, three. Lord, our Lord, how majestic in all the earth. One more time, together, louder. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this is repeated at the beginning and at the end, yeah? Uh, Tim Mackey said it best when he says, it's kind of a literary devices that clues us in to what's important in the passage. Furthermore, he explains, what is found in between the bookends is an explanation of the significance of the repeated words. That's a great thing that Hebrew poetry does, which is beautiful. So, um, I don't know if you paid attention, but who says Lord, our Lord, like two of the same words back to back? You don't say president, our presidents. It doesn't make much sense. You're like, no, it doesn't make sense. We do that. So why does he say that? Well, in the Hebrew language, the two words are different. The first Lord is the word for Yahweh, the I am. The one that you find in Exodus that reveals itself. The powerful, all-creating God, I am. That's who David is speaking to, I am. And that's powerful. He's singing a song of praise to the I am, to the God who created everything. But then the second Lord is actually the word Adon, where the word Adonai comes from. And that actually means master. But master, we have this kind of like weird tendency in our language to say master-slave. So it's not really a positive thing. Uh, but Gary Brashear says it best when he says, the term master here is a very relational, relational term, not like slave-master, which is the only place we use this term in our common language. Neither is it boss, like in a workplace. Now, this is the the take-home message. The term comes with the covenant faithfulness of the God who relates to us with loyal love. That's much more profound. So what is David doing? David is praying to this God, Yahweh, the I am, who happens to be also his God, the one he's relationship with. We have get to be in relationship with him. Um, and so when you pray this psalm, when you're shaped by these psalms, we get to partake in declaring that God, who created everything, is also our God, a relationship God. He's not distant. You know, sometimes we think, oh, this God far away somewhere. No. No, this God, this God is I am, who created everything, is also my God, our God. So here's my question to you this morning, or this afternoon. Is God your God too? Or is it just this far away God that we just observe and feel like, yeah, he's far away. I just don't really feel it or sense it. But is he your God? It's, it's, my, it's my hope this morning, my prayer, that as, you, as we're going to gather around and worship and come to the table, you will encounter this God. Not just this distant God that we just don't know anything about. No, it's your, your God too, my God too, that we get to serve. Um, 
And that's, that's, that's my question to you. So let's keep on reading. The second uh, verse says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Um, the word for glory here is actually authority, which is really interesting. Uh, so David declares God as his authority above the heavens. Um, but what David is doing here is really clever. Um, we read the words heavens, and right before we read the, verse, the, the word earth, right? It's kind of like side by side. Um, so let me ask you a question, another question. When I say the word earth, now don't answer this one, just think about it. What do you picture? Earth. And if I say heavens, what do you picture in your head when I say heavens? All right. I'd love to hear your thoughts. When I say earth, what are you picturing? A sphere, a globe. What else are you picturing? Dirt. Yeah, good. Blue oceans, maybe? What is it? Dolphins, why not? San Diego, there's the ocean. <laughs> Anything else? When I say Earth. The Earth from the Moon. Ooh, yeah, nice. Nice. How about heavens? What do you think about when I say heavens? Clouds? Well, we're in San Diego, you guys. Like, the clouds are not, they're not, I mean, <laughs> not there. But typically clouds. Okay, what else? Heavens. Space, dark, yeah, what else? Above us, yeah. Galaxies? Oh, we're going far. What is it? Different Earth? Yeah, okay, I like it. So, we have this beautiful picture, right? It's amazing. It's a globe. It's, 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 and if you're a little bit like scientifically curious like me, like, well, actually, the Earth is made of this, the mantle and the crust and all these elements. And it's like, whoa, that's fascinating. Um, do you know that this knowledge that we have about heavens and Earth is about 200 years old or less? Last time we took a picture of the Earth as a globe, like someone mentioned, that was in the 60s. So before that, we had no concept whatsoever that the Earth was really round. I could not picture it in our head. This is recent. Now, we get this. This is, this is what we see. It's beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous. And we wonder. Plane coming. Or maybe not. How about 3,000 years ago? What do you think people thought about when they thought about Earth and Heaven? Let me try to describe it for you. And Michael Heiser says that, and he agrees with Tim Mackey and Walton. He says, the Israelites believe in a universe structure that was common among, among sorry, the ancient civilization of the biblical world. So it encompassed three things. First one, a heavenly realm. What's around? What's above? An earthly realm, where humans are. And then, a underworld for the dead. That was their reward view. Uh, more specifically, says the vocabulary of this cosmology is also similar to that found in the literature of Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Canaan. So, if you were born 3,000 years ago in Israel, you would view the world this way. Let me try to depict it. I wish I could show you a picture of it. It would make more sense, but I'm going to try to describe, describe it. The sky is thought of as a firmament. It separates the waters above from the waters below. So it's a dome. It's a beautiful dome. Isn't it a dome? From left to right, it's a dome, yeah? Seems like it. Uh, where do rain come from? Well, there's, there's windows in this dome and water come through. Now you're laughing, but I'm, I'm serious. Where else would water come from? Right, there's, a, there's and in pores. Okay. Um, we also have in this dome, we have God is, is above this dome. That's why it says your glory above the heavens. God is above this dome in the worldview. Still with me on this one? 
Okay, and then we have the earth. What was the earth? Was the earth for them? There's water everywhere. So water is like I don't understand. It seems like the earth is is supported by by pillars floating on water. So to their worldview, the earth is this solid ground that has pillars because there must be a bunch of deep water under it. Why? Because when they deep for water, they went down. So there must be water at the bottom. Are you thinking about this? So you get water, you go down. You don't go up, so you go down. So okay, there must be water under. And how do you hold this weird mass of, of dirt? Well, there must be pillars to hold it, like a temple. Makes sense. Makes sense to us. So for them, the earth was surrounded by the seas, and they came out of water. And so they thought that the earth was held fast by pillars and, or sunken foundations. That's what they thought. That's their worldview. Now, do you see how different their worldview is from our worldview? They have no concept of a globe that's going around the sun and the 24 hours. That's not the concept they're thinking about. And we should not assume that our worldview is better. No, it's not better. It's just different. We just must recognize that our worldview is actually driven by scientific discoveries. And we can even get rid of it. Now, if I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you that the Earth is not round anymore, like, there's just pictures of it. You cannot not take this out of your brain. It's impossible. So here's what I want to tell you. Let's not impose on the text because it is not necessary to hear the profound truth about God. Let's, not, let's try to not impose this on the text. Even though God in his wisdom did not choose to update their understanding of the scientific world, we should not consider the Bible as irrelevant. Rather, even in its ancient worldview, the Bible still transcends the ages. Why? Because I think the Bible goes, some, goes after something much deeper than understanding of cosmology. The Bible is about what? The Bible is about the relationship between God and his creation, heaven and earth. And the plan is to restore it once and for all towards the end. That's the Bible. Right? It's not about a scientific worldview. That's not about cosmology. That's not the purpose. God did not say, let me give you physio physiology 101 again. That's a good, good class for you to take. No. No, why do that? Let's keep reading. Uh, you still have your Bible open or your phone open? Yeah? All right, let's read this together. We're going to read the verse, uh, verse 2. Ready? But to hear everybody reading this one loud again is going to shape you as you read this. So, Turn the mic off. Here we go. One, two, three. Through the praise of children. Go ahead. You have established against your enemies. We have different translations, apparently. To silence the foe and the avenger. Yeah? Okay. I don't know if you're like me. But I'm a pretty curious person to start with. That's why I kind of chose science and chemistry as a, as a discipline. Um, this is pretty puzzling. What the heck is he talking about? Infants, children, strongholds against your enemies? That's, that's pretty uh, difficult, but what is the link? But here's the thing. One of the ways to think about this is to understand the stark contrast between Yahweh, depicted as a creator king of the heavens and the earth, and the fact that he elevates small and significant creatures, like infants and babies, to accomplish his purpose. There's a beautiful contrast. Powerful God insignificant babies and yet God uses them to accomplish his purpose and by the way the word foe and avengers most likely refer to the chaotic force forces that God overcame when creating the world you can help me to read this one yeah so we're going to go from verse 3 to 8 you have it open all right here we go when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what is mankind that you're mindful of them the son of man that you care for them. Verse 5, you have made them, keep going, yeah, and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the path of the seas. You can picture David being looking outside in a beautiful cloudless night, looking at the stars and, and saying this. It's a beautiful declaration of, of God. He's amazed at God, saying, this is amazing. This is, this is glorious and beautiful. Um, that God would actually elevate small, infinite creatures to accomplish his purpose. That's so profound. And we'll return to this towards the end. Um, but what I want to do is ask you another question. When you read, you just read this, what does that remind you of in Scripture? There's, a, there's some, some passage in Scripture that should remind, be remembered. What is it? Sorry, it was a G, yeah, we said? Genesis, yeah. There's a lot of language. So, hey, how about you help me out? How about you turn to Genesis 1? You have it on your phone. You can click on it or your Bible, first page. Genesis 1. Let me know when you're ready. We're going to read this together. I'll read it, but at least you're able to follow. All right, what I want to do, though, is before I read this loud, I want you guys to picture the worldview we just described, yeah? The dome, the earth. Just picture this, yeah? And you'll see how everything will hopefully make sense. Let's go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heaven and the earth. The earth was formless and desolate emptiness. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. There was an evening. And there was morning one day. Let's go and move to verse 14. Verse 14, yeah? Okay, there we go. Scroll down. And God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky. The vault of the sky. You see again the language, right? The vault of the sky. To separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And so it was. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, we call this the sun. And the lesser light to govern the night, the moon. Let's go to verse 26. You there? 26? Yeah, all right. Here we go. Last one to read together. And then we'll uh, keep going. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds and the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you notice the parallel between Genesis 1 and Psalm 8? Did you see it? Right? We have moons, stars, flock, animal, birds, fish. It's all there. David is pulling from the Torah, you guys. Um, and that's like Genesis 1 language. That's where he got it from. Now, his interesting thing is that his worldview, David's worldview when he wrote this psalm, is almost identical to the author of Genesis' worldview. And that's when God, uh, David praises God. Now, here's something I want to mention on this specific psalms. Um, I sometimes question and wonder if we have not lost a sense of wonder at our beautiful world. You know, we spend hours here and we forget to do look up. 
I hope and I pray that the Psalms will shape us to reconsider this beautiful world and look at it and be grateful and be like, this, this is amazing, astonishing. I really hope we will because we lost sometimes, yeah, like I said, I feel like we, we lost this sense of, of looking at creation with fresh eyes and saying, this is amazing. The fact that you can breathe oxygen, it's going into your system from the atmosphere is amazing. We cannot hold our breath more than like, what, eight minutes maybe? And then we're done. The fact that you can see colors, vibrant colors, it's outstanding. Now, it's not perfect. There, there's issues in this world. I'm, I'm understanding that. But let's not forget to ponder and wonder on creation. We forget that. We live next to the ocean, you guys. Have you, I mean, look at the most magnificent sunset. And you cannot not be in awe of the colors that go from blue to eventually like purple and red. And it's just magnificent. I think we lose this sense of awe sometimes. And that's sad. We're so busy. We're so distracted. I pray this will shape you and help you to pause and wonder and go outside in nature. This is just so beautiful. Um, now, as an organic and medicinal chemist, like Evan said, um, I have an interest in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 uh, because they shape my way of thinking uh, in, in many ways. However, I also recognize that as a scientist standing here reading Genesis to you, that can raise some red flags. Like, oh, ho, what is he going to say? Is he going to say the E word? Mm, you know, it's like, ooh, what's going to happen here? Um, and so we have basically a very divisive um, issue here. And it's very unfortunate. Um, why have these chapters been so divisive? Here's why. I think because the Bible provides an account of the creation of the world and mankind that appears to be contradictory with the fairly recent scientific expansion of the world. Now, I don't want to get into the debate, but we call this the creation-evolution debate. Yeah, it's a controversy. Um, that's not my goal today. Uh, I don't want to debate that. I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation later if you want, but I don't want to have the debate here. You know why? Because for me, this conversation is a non-essential issue of faith. It's not essential. Like, I mean, we believe in Jesus. That's, that's essential. The fact it was made a while back or whatever, non-essential. It's a non-essential issue of faith. So you know what? Get what? Guess what? Have dinner. Talk about it French ways. You know, like a three-course meal, three-hour dinner. <laughs> sit down with people. Talk about it at length. Go for it. But let's not divide over this. No need. No need. Let me say that again. No need to divide over this one. Let's have a good conversation. Also, read about it. I'm amazed by how many people use science without reading or learning anything about it. I'm like, it's like me going, <laughs> bad explanation, but I'm going to go to Steve Curry, who plays basketball, says, you should probably work on your shot. It's like, dude, it's like, what am I talking about? I do nothing about this, right? We do the same thing with science. Let's be mindful. Let's read. Let's just, we have access to so much stuff. Be mindful. But um, I'll speak as an elder, as, as a scientist, to say three things that I think are important as we go back to Genesis afterwards. The first thing is important, so please pay attention. Science, I love science, it cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. It cannot. Why? Because science is concerned with the natural world. And last time I checked, God is not physical, nor does he abide by the natural laws. Doesn't. Okay, that's the first thing. Trusting God and having faith is a separate issue from scientific issues. I'll tell you this as scientists. If someone comes to you and says, I'm a scientist and I'm not, I don't believe in God, for me, these are two different statements. They're not linked. First one, they're a scientist. Great, welcome to the club. Second one is you don't believe in God. That's a faith statement. It's, it's, it's a belief. You don't believe in God. That's fair. That's fine. But it has nothing to do with your scientific background. The fact that I choose to believe in God, is a tr it's, a tr it's God reveal himself to me. I, I feel blessed. That's his grace. 
but it's also a choice. But science cannot prove or disprove God. Why? Because just two different worlds. Two different realms, sorry. That's a tough one. Yeah? Two different worlds. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with the things around me, the laws of nature. God is above that. So I can prove. There's no experiment I can do today to prove that God exists. I can walk into my lab and put two stuff into my, my two chemicals together and be like, here, there you go, God existed. I can't do that. I can't do that. I literally cannot do that. Nobody can. Second thing. Science is supposed to be to correct itself over time. In other words, scientists expect to be proven wrong. We're wrong all the time, and we're so happy about it, sort of. I mean, sometimes it just like, sucks, but most days you're pretty happy about it. Why? Because we pursue truth. So if you come and say, hey, that was wrong, and here's the data for it, I'm like, oh, that was great, thanks. And next time I'll prove you wrong by bringing more data. I mean, that's what we do. And we correct science over time. That's what science is, is, is this overcorrection. It's published from all around the world, and people have access to this and say, okay, that's how science works. By the way, I'm not upset when I'm wrong. I'm used to being wrong. I'm just like, yeah, of course I'm wrong. So what? I just, with the data I have, I'm making this claim. If you give me better data, I'll make another claim. Show me the data. I'm, I make a good argument, by the way. Um, just FYI, that matters. Um, otherwise, nobody believes you. Um, I just want to follow truth where it leads. That's it. And I don't have a choice, by the way. If data is clear in front of me, I'm, I'm going to be like, I don't feel like it. Like, I don't feel like gravity is real. It's like, that's not an option for me. It's like, I'm sorry, I don't have the option. Now, it leads me to three. And this is unfortunate, especially in COVID, and when we hear so much stuff around on social media, but scientists are not evil people walking around lab and trying to prove the Bible wrong. We've heard so many be like, I mean, if you think scientists walk around with a Bible and be like, let me prove that this is not true. I mean, there's maybe three people on earth who do that maybe, maybe. But most people I know, and in San Diego, it's a massive biotech hub. There's so many scientists around in La Jolla and stuff. No, people just have families. They need to make money. They pay the bills, and they try to be curious people who just love to discover things. That's it. They're just normal people. There's politicians, there's firefighters, teachers, and there's scientists. They're not evil, right? They're not out there trying to say, oh, every day I'm opening my Bible, and hey, there we go, it's not true. No, who does that? Who cares? Like, it's, that's, not, that's not their point, that's not their purpose, right? So, why, why am I saying all this, you guys? Um, because as we return to Genesis 1, the origin questions are important and the place of human on earth is, is something important. But here's the thing. Could God have created everything in six 24-hour days? Yeah, sure. Could God have created everything over billions of years? Sure. Could God have used, have created humans from real dust? Sure. Could God have created humans to evolve and somehow breathe life into them? Sure. God is God. He can do anything. But whichever view you pick, there are many unanswered questions on both sides. They're worth discussing. They're not worth dividing over. Let me say that again. Whichever view you pick, there's some, there's some issues. There's some challenges there. But they're not worth dividing over. They're worth discussing, though. French-style dinner, three-course meal. You got that. <laughs> right? Okay. So, as a scientist, I believe in God. He created everything. But I don't believe that Genesis is concerned to tell me about science. I don't walk in my lab every day and say, what is the Bible going to tell me to do today? No. No. You know why? The Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's just not. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. That's a bummer. You can say it was like, well, yeah, but the Bible doesn't tell you what job you should do tomorrow. So what? That's okay. So we're about to wrap up. And I want to leave you with, with, with a couple things. Here's the first thing. 
what if the creation account of Genesis, one and two specifically, is actually setting up the tone for the rest of the biblical narrative by answering questions that all humans have or will have at some point in their lives? I'd like to propose to you that Genesis actually answers questions that are much more relevant to human beings. Who we are. Where are we? What's wrong with this world? Is there a solution to it? That's what Genesis tried to answer. You see the way it was done in six days or, or six millions of years or whatever. Have fun, talk about it. But that's not what scripture is after. Scripture is after saying, no, there's something deeper that every human throughout the ages have felt. Who am I? Genesis describes the creation of a world that was chaotic. But when God came, he spoke and breathed order into this world. And what came out of it is a garden where humans could flourish. God created mankind in his image to rule over this world and live in unity with him. Heaven and earth were united. Like we talked about, heaven and earth united. That's why God came to be in, in this earth with us. That was the, that's Genesis' account. This is who we are. We are up to rule with God on this earth. And this is where we are. Now, there's something that was wrong. And you want to know what's wrong? Read Genesis 3, a couple chapters after. It's called the fall, sin. We're sinners, separated from God. Is there a solution? Yeah, Jesus. That is the story of Genesis is telling us. It sets the tone for the rest of scripture. If we get this right, we have a much clearer understanding of what the Bible, Bible narrative is all about. The Bible narrative is all about God reuniting heaven and earth through Jesus and eventually allow us to once again rule with him on this renewed earth. That's what it's all about. This profound and freeing because we don't have to divide about this. Now, we're going to come to the table in, in a minute. I want to go back to Psalm 8 as we wrap up. And especially verse 3 to 5. Do you have it open? Psalm 8? You have it open? Yeah? Good. Let's read one more time. Let that shape you. We're going to read this slow. Let that shape you. I'm going to pray, like, read this over you, but try to use all your senses, your ears, your eyes, touching the, the Bible or your phone. And let, let, let's, let's ponder what it says. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings or the son of men that you care for them. Isn't that beautiful? What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. David is making another contrast, which has been happening through the Psalms. And it's so humbling. The God of the universe who created everything with power and majesty and incredible complexity is also mindful of you and mindful of me. This is who we are. We have a God who created everything. It's powerful. It's beautiful. But God, this God, Yahweh, is still mindful of us. He cares for us. And that's the invitation for today. God chose us to rule with him. He gave us dominion over everything and crowned us with honor and glory. Do you realize that? You've been crowned by God with glory and honor. This is so profound. And yet, we're also sinners because of the fall. We live in this both-end world that Evan has been talking about so well. So this, the invitation is clear. Come and bring your lives 
into alignment with this good, wise creator who desires to share his power and authority with his children. Now, for some of you, you might be like, yeah, this, this God far away, he's not, he doesn't care for me. Look what I'm going through. And there's a lot of grief going on, maybe, and pain, and I understand that. But today, let's not forget that, yes, you might be going through pain and suffering. It might be difficult. But I tell you, because Scripture says it, God cares for you. God is mindful of you. He doesn't forget you. You might not feel like it. It might be difficult. That's granted. But God still cares for you. So this is the invitation again. Come. Lift up your eyes. Declare that God's name is majestic, regardless of the life circumstances. Let's proclaim this truth, regardless of what you're going through, that God is God. And he reigns. And he created this most amazing earth, and he created you. And we get to be in relationship with him. Let's celebrate that. Let's pray that. Let's be shaped by that. And then let God do what God does. Let's pray. God, you are the wise creator of this world. And we get to rule with you. You're majestic. You're glorious. God, I'm so humbled by the fact that you've created everything. So much complexity that we barely understand it. But God, I'm, I just want to pray this afternoon. May we wander again. May we reflect on what you've done and declare that you are good, that you are God. And we have so much um, to be thankful for. And God, I pray, may you help us to lift up our eyes and consider what you've created. And may we remember today that as we encounter you through songs and through communion, that you are mindful of us, that you care for us. And I pray specifically for those who are struggling with grief and pain and suffering and wonder where you are. May today they encounter you. They encounter the God who cares for them. May they sense your love and your presence in the most profound and powerful way. And may they be able to lift up their eyes and declare how majestic your name is. I pray this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.